As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is Conversations with People Promoting Mental Health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. Welcome to The Making of a Marketer, the podcast that takes you around the world of marketing one topic at a time. Hosted by digital marketing consultants, Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo. We welcome you to join the conversation. Stream us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Now here are your hosts, Jess and Andy. Well, hello, hello, Jess. It is a wonderful Wednesday afternoon, and we're streaming today early enough to where I haven't hit my deadline for coffee. So you just, you know what we talk about, there's people that do these podcasts, and they do like beer trials and whatnot, and they kind of just go with it as they go through. I drink coffee as I go through the podcast and get myself hopped up. So today, we got the Sam Houston State mug. Um, if you're on video watching the live stream, it is a blueberry blend from Trader Joe's. So I'm getting a little hipster today on you, Jess. I love it. Yes, I already had my matcha. I, I'm now calling it just given what stage I'm at with with sleep and sleep training. I call it my cup of optimism. I chugged <laughs> it earlier. So how is your sleep? Let's get an update on that real quick. You know, what's going on in the household right now? Funny that you ask because you know we we just hit the the three month mark and things are getting a lot better. So last night was actually the first night where we got a seven hour chunk of sleep. So that that is a celebration. Seven hours that's that's what doctor recommends. So hey, <laughs> you, you know you're getting there. 
Yeah, that's, that's the thing. So Kristen and I were talking about this, my fiance, um, you know, we've had the kids discussion, you know, going down to the future. And I've told her, it's like, hey, if I get like one five, six hour, four hour, like really bad sleep night, I can bounce back pretty easily from one. If I do two in a row, that's when I start getting a little goofy. So I imagine you're probably sounds like you've been doing a lot of those in a row, but you're hanging in there, right? Yes, it's got it's slowly gotten much better. I still remember the first day that I got a four hour chunk and that was a miracle. And it felt like I was a completely new and different person. Sleep deprivation is real. That like that I would say that's the biggest thing. Well, that's another day for another episode is maybe marketing <laughs> on sleep deprivation and telling our, no, there, there's some story. I have some stories there. Maybe we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Um, I, I have some true tales of what a 12, like 15 hour day and then bouncing back the next day and doing marketing looks like. And it's probably not ideal, but it's kind of a fun thing to talk through. But we'll talk about something else today. We are welcoming Josh Marshall to the podcast, and I'm really excited for this episode because this is a very new topic for me and, and really excited to hear what Josh has to say. So Josh is a communications director at Intuitive Machines. I'm going to let him explain the company a little more than myself, but it kind of goes back to some of my old roots where I used to work at Space Center Houston, uh, working in the space program uh, within Houston, partnering with different companies such as NASA, of course, the big one, but there's a lot of other uh, programs that are in that area that are involved in building space and kind of going from this private sector to public sector. So we're really excited to have Josh on today because what we're going to be talking about is marketing communications from going from private private to IPO, which is something I don't think we talk a lot about. So with that, Josh, we're super excited to have you. And I know this is going to be a very insightful conversation. It's a pleasure to join y'all and uh, just to make sure I'm hopping on the right train. I'm having Kirkland brand water. So if we have good Trader Joe's coffee, a little bit of matcha, Sam Houston State and uh, some good old fashioned Kirkland Costco water. Staying hydrated is important. It helps your brain power and keeps you going throughout the day. So the dietitians that I watch on TikTok would be very happy with your recommendations there. Uh, so- <laughs> Let's start it right off, Josh. So we asked this question just right out of the gate for everybody just to kind of get the, the ice broken and get you going is, you know, we talk about creativity a lot when it comes to marketing. And, you know, a lot of us at times can get stuck, especially when we see industry changes, staffing changes, whatever that may be. You know, a lot of us are trying to figure out that path towards creativity in 2023. It's been such a, a different year for us in marketing. So for you specifically, we want to know how you get unstuck creative, creatively and uh, what's your just method to the madness? Well, there's a there's a couple approaches, uh, I would say. The, the first one's probably old school. It's time to just go outside and do some yard work, uh, shovel some some rocks, move some dirt, pick up some sticks, maybe cut a tree down if you need it. Um, sometimes that's a that's a pretty good cure. Uh, other times, especially in the past 12 to 16 months, specifically for, for writing and generating ideas, it's really been turning to AI to ask the right questions, let it spit you out a hundred answers, and maybe out of one of out of a hundred, maybe one of them's 
the right direction that can get you a nice uh, stepping stone in towards uh, the final solution, which seems to be a little bit easier of a way. And sometimes it's it's the right way to do things. But uh, when all else fails, just go back to the, uh, the old school way and uh, chop some wood, if you will. I love it. Sometimes just getting out and getting some air, you know, that's something working from home. I actually probably do a little bit less of than I used to. So try and get a little bit better at that. And then, you know, the, the AI technique is something that we're trying to learn on the fly a lot, you know, just, uh, I, I tried to do a practice with chat GPT and just type things into it and see what happens. It's not always the best use, but Jess and I have tried that a little bit. We actually taught a little session about that. So we're always trying to learn it, but more importantly, we want to talk about you today. And, and, you know, we now have an insight to your creative brain. Let's talk about what you do on a day to day. So director of communications at Intuitive Machines, uh, kind of tell us, you know, what your day to day is. And if someone who's kind of unfamiliar uh, with, you know, the, the space program, what you guys are doing, how you're partnering with different companies, kind of just lead us through that and what your world is like. Sure. Well, uh, unpackage this thing and say the day to day is uh, is a unique situation. Uh, you know, a lot of times you hear folks and you're like, oh, you know, what's what do you do every day? And you hear a lot of people say that uh, you know, every day is different. And I always chuckle because I can't really imagine comparing anybody's day to day to an aerospace startup that's going to the moon and becoming a publicly traded company all in less than about 12 months. Uh, so you never really know what hat you're going to wear, and the uh, the urgency is always there. Uh, right now, um, it's myself, Nick Rios, who's our content creation guru. We have a 3D modeler and texture, Carter Pytel. We have a graphic designer, Mariana Canino. And then we have more of a Swiss Army knife, and that's, uh, that's Hunter Christian, who really helps across the board. And collectively, our days can be anything from focusing in on what our live stream with NASA TV is going to look like, talking to our NASA payload customers, Nick's content creation, which is might as well be world renowned at this point. I know that uh, Andy, you're very familiar with that. Um, our 3D modeling and texturing, uh, a new thing for us on any given day you can kind of swallow up a week is uh, once you become a publicly traded company, you have HR systems, human capital, looking into the employee value proposition. So we do what we can to support that. Um, as an aerospace company, you're always in a proposal cycle. So our graphic designers working on what those proposals look like, you know, asking NASA, hey, we'd like to take this stuff to the moon for you, while the 3D modeler and texture is taking an idea and making it real for them to put it in as graphics. Um, We'll touch a little bit on marketing and partnerships. Sometimes that can eat up a day. Uh, on Saturday, actually, uh, our partnership with Columbia is kind of coming to life at Bristol Motor Speedway. Bubba Wallace will be racing the Columbia gold foil moon car with intuitive machines on the hood. So sometimes, you know, that can be an entire day or working on our website, different payload relations. Uh, I think you're kind of getting the gist. It's, it's just everywhere on any given day. But all of those things are there to you know, support intuitive machines. And at its core, the, the easy idea to get around is that intuitive machines is a space exploration com company. That's something that everyone can kind of wrap their head around and, and really digest. Now, we are a space exploration company that's supplying space products and services to support a sustained robotic 
exploration of the moon, Mars, and beyond, right? That's the boilerplate uh, statement. But that's typically where you start to, to lose people. But I've been working on how to make that a little bit easier, something that folks can, can relate to. And we do that by uh, characterizing this as you have intuitive machines as a space exploration company. But what we've actually done is create a mini Apollo program. That's something that most people can relate to and say, okay, I get it. So you're not just building a lunar lander um, that delivers payloads to the moon, but a global communications network to command and control that lander, a mission operations center that, you know, mission control is something that people are very familiar with. That is the nerve center of all of our exploration and creating that mini Apollo program wouldn't have been possible without NASA. And I think you kind of touched on what our interactions are uh, with them. And the story itself, you know, kind of goes back to, to 1972, right? Uh, Apollo 17 leaves the surface of the moon. And, and that was it as far as soft touchdowns. And you know, there was one intentional crash landing with the satellite. Um, but for all intents and purposes, landing on the moon, it's something we haven't achieved in more than 50 years. And back in 2018, um, NASA, the United States government refocused on the moon saying, you know what, the moon is of strategic interest and we're going to figure out a way to get humans there sustainably. So in 2018, uh, they welcomed intuitive machines into what they call the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative or CLPS. So you'll hear me refer to it as, as CLPS a lot of times. And the idea behind it was to allow the quick acquisition of lunar delivery services from American companies like Intuitive Machines to get payloads from NASA onto the surface of Moon to advance the capabilities for, for science, exploration, or commercial development of the Moon. And the way the agency refers to it is that CLPS is a key part of NASA's Artemis lunar exploration efforts. So you have Apollo sitting up high, we're making an, a miniature Apollo program, uh, all inside of a commercial company. People are a little bit more familiar with Artemis. And then you have clips out here floating in the distance. But that's generally how all of those blend together. And um, the other slice of that pie is, is commercial partners. Um, so you have NASA saying, you know, we need you to get these payloads to the moon. And that really foundationally is, is where Intuitive Machines was founded with that goal. But as a commercial company, you get to do uh, more commercial things. You know, it's pretty obvious in the name of commercial company. And that means that, you know, when CLIPS started, there weren't a lot of people working on lunar exploration because we haven't been exploring the moon for 50 plus years. Um, so it put intuitive machines into this position where, you know, NASA is, is assisting us in companies are saying, hey, I really want you to take this to the moon for us. That side of things is really, you know, the engineering bits. Um, as far as our marketing side of things, uh, that's really been interesting and fun to work on. Uh, one of the things that we focused in on, I want to say about two and a half years ago, was exploring the idea of things that already exist that can push innovations on Earth. And that's how we met Columbia Sportswear Company. Um, the inside of their jackets that you can get on Earth, it's called OmniHeat Infinity. We took that and it was inspired by the, the MLI, the gold wrappings on Apollo. That's why they built it in the first place and made it gold. And they said, it'd be really cool if we could take this to the moon. 
said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And we tested it on earth, put it through thermal vacuum chamber testing and said, you know what? There are some properties in jackets that people are wearing all over the place. Not so much in Houston. I think it's been a hundred for about a century now, but uh, we're going to put this thing on the moon and uh, we're going to get readings and we'll see how it protects the lander and performs. And those ideas of commercial partnerships to push innovation on earth are probably the most exciting things to work on as a, a marketer at intuitive machines, if you will. Excellent. I'm still trying to process everything. <laughs> so I yeah, have very limited knowledge when it comes to space exploration, but it sounds pretty remarkable. And I, I'm really curious about the, the innovation piece. I, th so this is just a random question. Do you think that you need to be like a, an, ex an extreme risk taker or uh, be very adverse to risk taking in order to push these types of innovations forward? Oh, that's such a good question. Our CEO would be so proud of that question. <laughs> um, a lot of times they refer to it as a pressure cooker of innovation, right? You see these huge programs it um, doesn't really matter what country it is, but you always see them delaying and it's cost plus and more money gets into it. Well, in this situation through CLIPS, through NASA's CLIPS, these are firm fixed price contracts. That means that this is how much you bid, you were awarded, that's the amount you get, figure it out. And that is where you start working in how much do you lean forward? What risks are you willing to accept in order to accelerate innovation, or as Steve Altimus would say, a pressure cooker of innovation? Um, and it really does force you to solve problems that you really wouldn't have seen in any other situation. One of my favorite examples, uh, Steve likes to say, you know, how do you go to the moon for less than $100 million, right? And when we first got started, um, we had to build something to test our engine. Right. Traditionally, this is like a million dollar facility to test space propulsion engines. Uh, we went to an auction and bought a flatbed truck for a few thousand dollars and we turned it into a mobile test stand and we would drive it out onto an abandoned airfield at Ellington Airport and we would fire our engine, uh, not in a multi-million dollar facility. But that's the pressure cooker of innovation, answering really hard questions like how to go to the moon for less than $100 million. You just have to figure it out. And uh, from that, you get innovation. Josh, one thing that I'm really hearing a lot, what you're talking about here, and I think it's unique that we don't see this a lot with a lot of the marketers that, that I usually deal with, is you're very close to the product to the point you're almost testing portions of the product and what to market, who to partner with in itself. I mean, just the idea of that, hey, we can take this jacket to the moon. Like you're like really thinking this through and how you can get the company to that position, which kind of leads me to the, the next question is, you know, IPO was obviously something that your company really worked towards getting to that point and, you know, getting over that hump. But, you know, was there... I, I'm pretty sure, a thousand percent sure I know the answer. There's no playbook to this, but did you at some point find a playbook that made sense for you to get to that end goal? <laughs> Andy, if there's a playbook for this, you're also going to have to find me a time machine to redo the whole thing uh, because that would have been absolutely lovely to have a playbook for something like that. 
it wasn't until, you know, after the IPO back in February that, you know, you kind of think like how many people could even serve as like a SME that you could call as an expert to say, Hey, I worked at a space company, uh, going to the moon, going public kind of all at the same time. What are some, some key things that would really help me along the way? Uh, the, the answer is I couldn't find one, uh, that was, that was really willing to help me out. So we just kind of, uh, we strapped on our boots every day and, and figured it out, um, sometimes in 12 to 16 hour clips, but, uh, but, you know, we made it through. Tell us about that. Just tell us about some of the nuances that you started to encounter. So, uh, obviously you're, you're finding partners, you're trying to market with them. You're trying to show that you can raise money with this. And it's almost like to, and just correct me if I'm wrong on this, Josh, it's your marketing play is that almost like a business to business in a sense that intuitive machines is someone that is going to make this happen, that we are striving towards this IPO, that we are going to the moon that, Hey, this is who you want to partner with long-term. I mean, just hearing this, those are some huge financial stakes right there that you're leading a, a communications charge on. So you have an extremely valuable role to um, really bridging, like we live in this B2B world a lot where there's like a marketing, there's a sales, there's a product, but it sounds like you're touching on all of it to see this through to the finish line. I think that foundationally it really starts with amazing business development. Um, we have uh, we have a, a little running joke for our vice president of business development. I mean, when he really hits his stride, we just okay, Rain Man, Rain Man's got it under control. And so if if Pete McGrath, our VP of business development, is working on these things, our role isn't necessarily to lead the charge; it's to support, right? So when you think about traditional marketing, you're trying to get uh, earned eyeballs everywhere you go. Uh, in our function at Intuitive Machines, it's more so how do we support business development? How do we support ongoing missions? So uh, in the beginning, we touched on 3D modeling and texturing. We talked about Mariana working on graphics and Hunter being the Swiss army knife to make these things come to life. Um, rather than going out and let's say getting followers on LinkedIn, what we're trying to do is get contracts, right? Because this is, this, startup nature, right? You, you have to have revenue. You're going after revenue the whole time, finishing your technologies, proving your systems. And that's more so our function is to, to help those folks have the assets they need, whether it's making sure our materials look sharp, whether that is our imagery of everything that's ever happened on this first mission, terabytes of content, all of those things are great to see on Twitter and Facebook, or X, excuse me, and Facebook and Instagram. All those things are really great to see on there. And they do have multi-functions, but at its core, it was created to support business development. And then it spun off into more of the traditional marketing routes, right? Even Columbia, you know, that was, that's a business development, incubating commercial business. But now it's in a NASCAR race on Saturday with intuitive machines and Columbia on the hood. Right. It's it's kind of flipped around backwards versus traditional going out, getting eyeballs, selling those eyeballs, making money off of that. We created it to make business that makes money. And then we spun it off into the social elements. And Jess, I think this really resonates with some of the customers that we handle in our consultations. So sometimes uh, what we will encounter 
uh, and, and just definitely tell me if this aligns with you is I will have a company that says, hey, we're in this perspective where we're doing business development and we're trying to get going. We're trying to figure out what our budgets are. We don't know what all of tomorrow and what a year and a half from now brings. Like we're not able to sign this big contract right now, but what we need to do is start raising money and how can we align to create that one-to-one marketing to business development partners for them to start believing in us. And sometimes like I'll come into a consultation. I want to do big brand and talk about brand to demand and bells and whistles. But then I hear this and I know that I have to pivot. And there is a way to do this through a marketing lens is what you're saying, Josh. There might not be as much of a book on it as a traditional marketing play, play, but there is a route to take. I think that's extremely important when we do consult that we understand where the business is and achieve those goals first and then start to piggyback off of it. Definitely. Josh, I'm really curious, just given your experience and being able to now reflect for those marketers out there, for those organizations out there that are going to be going through an IPO, is there a place that they can start? Like, what would you recommend? (laughs) So usually uh, if you're going through an IPO, you actually started the year prior. Um, You started the year prior, maybe in a series A, series B, series C funding round before, let's say your intuitive machines and your target of a SPAC acquisition. So if you're on the marketing team or you're on the graphic designer in the marketing team, communications, whatever, you started a year prior working on all the presentation materials, everything from company overviews to the financials to the 30-year roadmap. So you had already started way back when. And it kind of gave you a foundation. It gave us a foundation to, to, to go into the IPO and really understand and know the business just enough to be dangerous. Um, you know, none of us are, are the executives pulling the, the strings there, but it gives you a good foundation in that year leading up to something like that. And when you get into it, the place to start is really the place to start that, that really worked for me was looking at other companies that have done it before looking at, let's say, a swath of of 10 companies and say, you know what, I really like the one or two things out of this company. Let's put that in our toolbox. I like what they did on this one. Let's put that in our toolbox. And that's everything from uh, who they go with for their wire service, who is hosting their investor relations website, uh, what their presentation material looks like, making sure it's uniform from what it looked like in the investor presentation all the way through, you know, your first quarterly earnings report. Um, that's really the place to, to look first is see what other people did well and how to add and make it better. And then look at things that maybe some folks needed to improve on and keep that in the back of your mind as you're making really fast, agile decisions all the time. Feels like every day um, leading up to and especially getting through that first quarterly earnings. Um, once you get to that point, I, th- I like to think it gets a little easier and, and knock on wood. Hopefully it does. Let's talk about that creative aspect, Josh. So, you know, in that area of Houston, uh, I formerly lived in the Clear Lake area. Um, For Houston listeners, you know where that's at. If you're not from Houston, uh, there's NASA, Johnson Space Center, there's Space Center Houston, where I worked, and there's a number of companies within that area, just also Houston in general, uh, that are kind of either in that public, I was nonprofit, or in your instance, commercial space. 
how do you creatively go about this and kind of live in that space, but also own your own identity as intuitive machines and kind of what you do, maybe a little bit different than the other space partners that are out there? Ooh, lots to unpack there. Um, I think at the the baseline level of it is you really don't say no to anything. There, there's no wrong answer until you figure out that it's wrong because no one had done it before. Um, commercially, that's probably that's probably right where you need to be is is figuring out what works. Everything is uh, is trial and error. You know, there's some things that don't work. A perfect example: um, about four years ago. Um, our big thing and what I didn't know about space flight is, is about the delays. And we were talking about to the moon, 2021, let's go like hashtag to the moon, we're going, you name it, stick the landing. We're all about these things. Um, well, it's 2023 and uh, we just secured our launch date uh, here in a couple months. So you can imagine like that's a definitely a huge lesson learned for sure. Like people interact, people will get excited, but what does that do for um, let's say the investor side? Uh, it's probably not as healthy in the public image because soon after eventually the story becomes delayed. I have another curiosity question, very tactical. Have, has your team ever used the 3D printer to like prototype the content or the communications or like how an investor presentation would go? A 3D printer for it. Um, there's a lot of really, really gifted engineers who uh, leave work at Intuitive Machines after a crazy day and they go home and work more and print 3D lunar landers. Um, so there's a little bit of that in there. Uh, but as far as like sculpting what our things look like, it more so comes from our 3D modeler and texture, Carter Pytel, and um, as well as, as Hunter Christian a little bit for somebody has an idea, well, we'll make it in CAD and give it some textures and see what it looks like. All right, this one looks really cool. Let's design it. We'll build both pages off of this and, and that's how it goes. So more so 3D digital than actually 3D printing physical. So Josh, I want to take this to another world and it's a world that we both formerly know. So uh, just, you know where I'm going with this because every time I catch this, I have to ask it on the program. So um, as a former broadcast journalism uh, major in radio host to myself, you're a former TV uh, reporter, Josh. So that really stood out just going through your background. There's so many of us in marketing now that come from the broadcast world. And I like to really advocate for that because, uh, you know, as in broadcasters, some people will do it for 30 years for some people that, hey, you know, they're looking to do something a little different. And I always like to just open that door for our counterparts to say, hey, if you want to do something different, you can do something different. That'll work for it. It takes some building blocks. It, it takes a little bit of some oomph to make that transition. But I always feel like former journalists are very strong in marketing because we come with a little bit of a unique background. So I kind of just wanted you to elaborate on that and, and hear what your thoughts are as you transition into this marketing world. Maybe it just works because we're all just a little kooky from our time working in broadcasting. <laughs> um, well, so I wasn't an esteemed radio host with a very in vogue uh, goatee. However, um, I did internship for a little while, but once I got out of college, um, I bounced around news stations um, because that's what I wanted to do. I grew up in the 
the golden era of ESPN watching Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen. And uh, that's what I thought I wanted to do. Coming out of college, you suddenly realize that news stations only have one or two sports reporters, but they have 20 news reporters. And so you kind of get roped into something that you didn't originally envision yourself doing, but you run with it anyway because you invested four years in college. So, hey, you're going to go after it. You're going to get paid not well, and you're going to bounce around a lot. Um, my first two years were in Flint, Michigan. I did another two years in Kansas City and then did three years at uh, KHOU Channel 11 in Houston. And making the transition uh, was certainly uh, unexpected. I was, uh, I was covering the space beat here and there when I could, um, you know, when there wasn't a massive car accident or shooting or a flood, you know, then you get to, to kind of do the things that you care about. And, uh, space is definitely what most folks care about in space city. And I was covering the beat a little bit. Um, intuitive machines won the original award to land uh, clips payloads on the moon, uh, May 31st, 2019. Um, so I had covered uh, that initial contract win as a reporter, met Steve Altimus, uh, got to meet a few of the folks working at the company. And then uh, afterwards, you know, the story ran. And then I went off to annual training for the National Guard for two weeks. Um, what I didn't know is that during those two weeks, Steve Altimus was emailing me, trying to get a hold of me. So when I, when I came back from those two weeks away, it was the groundbreaking of the Houston Spaceport, which we're about to move into our new building at the Houston Spaceport here in like two weeks, which is exciting to see it all come together. But uh, I go to the groundbreaking and, uh, you know, I, Steve, can I get a quick soundbite? And uh, sure, you know, we'd ask a couple questions, talk about the groundbreaking, what it means for intuitive machines, what it means for uh, if you haven't been checking my email. And he goes, oh, okay, well, don't check your email. I'll just tell you, how about you come work for me? And uh, I just kind of thought about it and I let him know that, hey, uh, the answer is yes, that would be amazing. And uh, here's your out. You can, you can revoke this, this invitation. Um, that was in July of 2020, or I'm sorry, July of 2019. And I told him, I said, Hey, you know, my, my national guard unit's deploying. I'm going to Syria for like a year and, uh, I'm not very useful for you while I'm there. And he looked about, you know, thought about it and he said, now nah, I'm good with it. And I started at intuitive machines like a week and a half later. Um, so I worked, I worked, uh, worked a few months, um, and then I, uh, I left for the national guard, but, uh, that transition wasn't probably what you're expecting to hear. Most of the time people invest time into, to learning, but it was really Steve, um, who saw something in me that I didn't, um, I look back to, to 2019 and, uh, I'm somewhere mixed in between that person was, completely oblivious, didn't know what the heck he was doing, didn't need to be in the position and kind of look where we are now and say, like, I don't know how he saw those things in me. And it worked out. Um, we're doing things that folks have never done before. And uh, I'll always respect him for that. No, I absolutely love that story, Josh. That just resonates so much with me as a marketer, as someone that came from 
a broadcast industry and you know my expertise while I was in broadcast of course was some of the producing and on air work but a lot of my especially was my social media work and that's actually what got me over into the marketing uh, lens early on and it took multiple people uh, through the journey believing that hey it's like you know this could be a little bit of a stretch to bring this guy in he doesn't have a marketing degree he doesn't have the marketing internships he has all this radio stuff which is cool but how does it translate to what we're doing I think that's a wonderful story and I, I know just uh, we talk about a lot, just like so many lenses to marketers and marketing and learning the different people you work with and how their different brains operate. You know, I think when you can find that right culture for your company, that right group and see something in a lot of different opinions, that's where a lot of the best marketing ideas come from. So I think that's an incredible story to hear. Probably the, the, the takeaway there, Andy, is that in, in the broadcasting world, um, particularly, let's say in news, is that the, the most valuable thing you learn is urgency. Everything's always changing. You never know if you're going to be on the west side of town uh, working on a story you like and care about because it's a little bit fluffy and you're about to go live and they're rerouting you and the helicopter's on its way to a house fire somewhere. And somehow you always manage to still deliver, still get a product on air. And at the end of the day, you just kind of finally take a deep breath. And that's probably, you know, you see the memes about, you know, marketing where everything is fine, but everything is on fire. You know, if that, if that meme holds true, then, then broadcasting is the perfect test bed for, for creating future communications and marketing professionals. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, I know we're, we're closing in on time here, Josh, I need to get one more question in and very important one. Uh, I'm going to stretch your brain a little bit here on intuitive machines. So we're talking three, five, 10 year plans. You know, you talked about, you know, going to the moon and, and the delays and, and where that's at now. I remember messaging that out at Space Center Houston when I worked there on social media that we were, you know, planning to get there and hopefully this timeline with this ever changing landscape. Is there kind of a framework you're looking for in intuitive machines where this can go over the next several years or do you think it's very much hey you know go with the punches go with the flow and keep building off that i think there's there's definitely a good blueprint being laid and in my personal opinion um is is certainly shaped and formed by you know our executive leadership at intuitive machines and i i definitely believe where they're coming from you know right now you're looking at india Russia, iSpace, now intuitive machines, all taking these shots at the moon, right? Right now, we're, we're standing on the edge of, of what will become possible over the next three, five, 10 years. And what I think is that you know, intuitive machines has a head start for all of this. You know, we're talking about commercial development with uh, the rain man of business development, right? We have this running head start on an emerging economy around the moon. You know, if you had to think back to, you know, the housing booms, the crypto boom, um, but the moon is of strategic importance to the government, right? This is, this is an attainable goal that has been set from NASA, having a sustainable human presence on the moon. Um, when you say that, it's what do you really need for those things? You need communications to it. You need spacecrafts. You need engines. Um, you need answers as to how to use those resources. And as I look to 
three, five, and 10 years, um, I really think that intuitive machines can become, um, and to quote Steve Altimus on this, they'll become what railroads, ships, and highways are for Earth, but just for the moon. And intuitive machines is that provider who's enabling, uh, let's say, civil government, you know, other other countries and reaching their goals and ambitions to go from you know the moon to Mars and beyond. I love it, Josh. That's just so much to think about, you know, as we process, you know, what you have to do and how pivotal you are to get these partnerships. And I, and I, I think you explained it so well that there's a commercial opportunity on the moon. Um, you know, my, my first thought is like a flag goes in, and it's like waving like McDonald's, like M and they like pay to have it in there. But I know it's much more <laughs> elaborate than that. But I started thinking about, it's like, you know, I'm thinking this through my like, traditional marketing lens. I'm like, man, what kind of inventory do they have on the moon? Like Andy, you're being ridiculous. So that, but you're, not, well, you're, well, you're taking the first step, man. Like, yes. You're taking the first step. What if McDonald's was was uh, working on development of of commercial astronaut space food, and we tested it on the moon? Yeah, the first a step is yeah. The first step is just having that logo on the flag or a logo on the sticker. But the next step of that is is why it's important. Yeah. What is their participation? See, I love this. It's that journalistic brain right there, Josh. Like you're getting to the story, which is important, but. We're at time, Josh. This was absolutely wonderful. We learned a lot. And I know Jess and I are about to unpack this a little bit because we learned so much. It's just like hearing how your brain works and how you're getting this to the finish line. You know, you got to the IPO to the finish line, but like what's after that? And like what's happening now? Like it's just so fascinating. So um, we'll continue to follow intuitive machines, continue to follow your work. It was absolutely wonderful having you here today. It was awesome hanging out with y'all, Andy, Jess. This was fun. I appreciate it. Definitely. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. So Jess, that was, so we talk about high stakes marketing. That's like the highest of high stakes marketing I've heard because there's so much on the line here. It's like, you're, you're trying to find a way to get to the moon. You're trying to build these commercial relationships, these business development relationships. You're trying to get an IPO. You're trying to like build your brand voice. And it's, it feels like it's almost like a unique lever of marketing for all of these. And it's so interesting just to go through Josh's brain and how he's tackling this. Yes. You were thinking McDonald's and I'm already thinking of fifth element. <laughs> and having a the, the the cruise ship spaceship that's going to transport us for vacations yeah. uh, on the moon across the planets. There's a little Star Wars in there. Yeah. Like these movies are coming to life. It's so interesting though because this was like a this is a business to business perspective, but I feel like a lot of companies. So we run through B two B. It's like. We want these things. We want someone to get a demo. We want someone to read an ebook, like throw a bunch of things at the wall. And then we look at what Josh is trying to do. And it's, it's like, basically, there's absolutely no canvas. There's absolutely no, like, there, there's no template of how to run this. And it's just go and make the relationships 
see if there's something there. And I love what he talked about with that jacket. Like you don't think as that as a natural partner. So like a jacket attached to, to the moon. But then sometimes when we talk about business to business, I work with companies and they're like, we only want to hit these businesses and only these people and only this industry. But Josh right here is in the space industry and he's talking to people that are in completely different walks of life. And he's using relationship building and business development skills in his marketing. It's so fascinating to hear and not something that's heavily taught. So it just really got my brain working because we talk about some of these big companies we work with, they could be partnering with anybody. It doesn't have to be some someone super, super specific. They just have to find a way to make it make sense. Yes. I, I saw multiple similarities between what he's doing and then looking at the B2B marketing space. Because at the end of the day, you're marketing the contract, you're marketing the relationship, and you're trying to obtain the the relationship. So it, it, it's like it's a very similar end goal mm -hmm. on both ends. And I think understanding where he's at too. So this took me probably a little bit to really understand. I mean, it's still a work in progress because I used to work or partner with some startups. And, you know, we talk about different strategies and whatnot, and like where we're trying to get. I love that Josh is very upfront that it's like, we need business relationships right now. That's what the company wants. That's where all of our marketing effort is going towards. So sometimes I work with startups like, hey, we want to build a brand. We want business relationships. We want leads. We want conversions. We want clicks. We want video views. We want to operate on, on eight different channels. And it's just like, it's hard for me to consult that. So like, if you just tell me exactly, this is the only, this is I mean, not the only thing that matters, but this is the North Star of where we need to be that talks, that goes into kind of the scale conversations we've had, you know, like what is the next year or two of your marketing? How do you scale that? You know, we talk about brand a lot, but I think there is a brand element attached to that. You just need to know where it's angled. So I think if, if you're a marketer listening to this, listening to Josh's angle is really, really important because it's a smaller marketing team. They can't do you know, 15 different layers of marketing. They have to focus on what they can do. And that's something that was really vibrant in his discussions is he kind of, you know, there's not a book for it, but he knew what he was trying to angle towards and stuck to it. And it's it, it seems like the not having the playbook is actually super beneficial because one of just the 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 different mindsets that I heard and we've talked about before is, you know, his ability to, the, the entire uh, company's ability to lean into yes and, and just saying yes and continuing to build off the ideas and uh, prototyping, testing and iterating. Mm -hmm. So like, the, you know, you kind of touched on it. Some other marketers uh, that may be more established or if you're looking at uh, different industries, marketing within those different industries that may be more established, there could be limitations there that are mm -hmm. holding people back or, or, or assumptions on, oh, it, it should be done this way, or it's been done this way in the past. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, continue that clip. Whereas like there's, you know, think about like, literally you're going into space. So there's, there's a whole realm of possibilities, but then also too, with how he's approaching the the communication strategy and the marketing strategy it's it's limitless 
And I thought about this yesterday, kind of going into this discussion. And I, it's just one of my sports references. So I was talking to Kristen, uh, my fiance. Um, my Astros are playing the Oakland Athletics. Oakland Athletics are terrible. They're the worst team in their division. Astros are first trying to win a division. Feels like it should be easy. But what I told Kristen, in sports, there's nothing more dangerous than a team that feels like they have nothing to lose. Because when they feel they have nothing to lose, they just go out there pressure-free and just do things. And I think about that in marketing, too. You know, it's great that to be in a high-level marketing position um, well-established company, rules, regulations, you know, whatnot. But I feel like that also gives you an aspect of something to lose because there's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And then sometimes some of the greatest ideas is I feel like, you know, we look at someone like Josh, I feel like there's not time to sit there and like go back and forth. And, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? It's just, let's just try it and see what happens. And I feel like with marketers, I see this a lot where some of the award-winning marketing that pops up or some of my favorite examples do come from these situations where it's like a marketer with not a lot to lose. And also a lot of the industry trends come from influencers who a lot of times are just out there doing it. Like if it works, it works. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's not, you know, it's not going to blow up a corporation or something. So I think there's something to be said to that. I don't know if, you know, if you work in a corporate environment, you can ever go fully into that mode, but you can start following people who do just go out there and kind of take risks, study what they're doing, and then incorporate it into your marketing as you see fit. And something that Josh alluded to, that's an important note, is there are people that are going to be out there taking risks. They're they're going straight to the sun. And even if they burn, they're going to, they're going to continue to go right into the sun, but there is a way to be a risk taker and be more calculated and controlled. Yes. And I've talked about that a little bit before. If I were hypothetical director of marketing, Andy, and I manage a 15 person marketing team. And, you know, it's, it's like, we'll just say this imaginary world. One thing I'd implement that I haven't seen before, and maybe I'd get in trouble with the CFO, maybe I wouldn't, is I would take my marketing budget. So I would say, let's say three to 5% of the year, I want to give this to my marketing team. And this is your trial budget. Like if you're running ads, this is your budget to try it. If you're um, the creative um, elements, it's your budget to try it. Like whatever it is, like whatever you're trying to do, this is your budget to try it. And then let's try this number of ideas, come back in a quarter, figure out if any of them have been successful. And if they have been, we now move this into the 95% budget pile. And it's one of our regular functions and just never stop doing that. I don't see, maybe there's somebody doing it out there and um, I'm completely off base. I don't see anybody using this mentality. And I think that that's something that, we lose in larger corporations of marketing. I think they're actually losing money by not doing this because they're not trying things and they get stuck. But if you just tried certain things, especially in a paid world, if you have a savvy group that kind of understands what those triggers are, like when something's about to take off, you just let them do it. They're going to figure out what that is and then they're going to just maximize potential off of it you're already moving in the right direction. I mean, if you're going to get the attention of the CFO and and get marketing a, a seat at the, the CFO's table, then you're, 
you're going to be in a good place because I think that that collaboration is key, mm-hmm. not only for the marketing organization and the, the growth of the the company, but for like the, the innovation pieces we're talking about mm-hmm. to, you know, to continue to push forward. Yeah. And it also, I think, helps for just employee retainment. Like, hey, if you know you're going like marketers, like this is something I've talked about a little bit on LinkedIn posts. It's like marketers, you know, we talk about ROI and growth and it's like, cool. Like we all like it. I mean, we, we need to, we know it's part of our job, but how many of them say it's like why they got into marketing? Like most people got marketing because they want to innovate and create cool things. Like, let's be real, like for the most part, I know everybody has their different things they like to do, but if you let people do that, I find that both go kind of hand in hand together once they kind of figure out how to make it work. But with that, I know we're close to time. Uh, we're going, Jesse posted a poll. We're going to have our uh, Making of a Marketer's Book Club coming up soon. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the book that you and I are going to be reading and getting back to you all in a few weeks? Yes. So we are going to be re- reading uh, uh, Sitting Pretty by Rebecca. I just want to make sure I'm getting the last name. perfectly pronounced, Rebecca Tausig, and apologies if I have mispronounced the name. And I'm I'm really excited about this because uh, not only is it going to give us a different perspective, but I really think there's a lot that marketers can take away from, from learning about a different perspective and uh, you know how to to market to everyone essentially we can never stop learning how to market through different perspectives <laughs> marketing to everyone marketing different layers like there's just pieces we can take from all of these so we'll have that in a few weeks i'm still efforting seasonal halloween guests so that's my goal is i really want to talk about halloween marketing so that's still trying to get that on the docket we have a month and a half to execute this so there's still time um but otherwise just another great episode and we'll keep this momentum rolling into the next week sounds great we'll talk soon bye bye You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.